So tonight we're going to be in the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 13 in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Judges chapter 13. Okay, the last time we were in Judges, we were in Judges 12, and we concluded with the life of Jephthah and three lesser-known judges. So lesser-known that off the top of my head, I can't remember the, the last three that I did. And today we're going to see the start of Israel's next judge, who pretty much everybody has at least heard of, even if you're an unbeliever, and his name is Samson. Now, if you look at the children's stories of Samson, or you look at some of the paintings, Samson was this steroided out, huge bicep, you know, big pectoralis uh, type of hero. But we, we don't know that he really looked like that. We just know that he had a... Are you guys going to, like, let me talk tonight? Or, you know... <laughs> Gee whiz. A little disorderly tonight. <laughs> anyway, we're going to see... Samson and see what the Bible says about him and some of you may be surprised and maybe say wow I didn't know that about him when the the uh, the story is done there's four chapters devoted to him tonight we're going to go into the first chapter basically we're going to talk about his parents and and his start and if I would title this anything I would call it starting well but we'll see quickly after this chapter it starts to go downhill in his life those of you who know Samson's life are, are laughing so starting with verse 1 in chapter 13, it says, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. I just want to stop there. I'm 41. So 40 years is pretty much almost all of my life. And I think about that and I meditate on that. And the children of Israel were enslaved by the Philistines for 40 years which, again, was pretty much most of my lifetime. And the Philistines were, almost, were always a picture of sin, and this is what sin does to you. When you wallow in sin and you get caught up in sin, it rules you, it enslaves you. So much so that the children of Israel, as we go into this uh, story about Samson, uh, even his military at one point asked Samson to stop causing waves, and they actually gave Samson up to the Philistines, which we'll, we'll go into. They, they were so involved in their dysfunctional, sinful lives and dysfunction of sin running, ruling them, that they actually got used to being enslaved by the Philistines. And we'll, we'll talk about that. The word Philistine is, uh, it just means someone who's a Palestine dweller on the Mediterranean coast. And these Philistine people actually migrated inland, right, uh, from the Grecian area. So they had roots in, in the Grecian uh, area. They were seafaring people, and one of the gods they worshipped was the fish gods. So, kind of futile, but this is what type of people we're dealing with. Verse 2. Here we go. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So you see an introduction now to Samson's parents. The, da the dad's name was Manoah. He was from the tribe of Dan. We don't know mom's name. 
Just call her Samson's mom or Manoah's wife at this point in time. The Danites were a coastal Israelite tribe that uh, moved because they couldn't dislodge the pagans there. And the Danites, if you remember from our Revelation study, were not included in the 144,000. And as we go through Judges, we'll kind of see why. Zorah was a, was a um, it bordered the Philistine territory. So you see this, and, and this is going to come into play later. Uh, Manoah and his wife, they're, they're good Jews, and they live very close to the Philistine area, the border there. Now, the angel of the Lord uh, was a pre-incarnate Christ. We've seen his, his appearance before in the Old Testament. And as we go further into it, I'm going to bolster the case for Christ and this, this figure who we're talking about as we go further on into this chapter. We see a similar pattern of barren women and a miraculous birth and a miraculous work. We saw it with Sarah. She, was, she got pregnant well into her you know, elderly years. We saw it with Elizabeth, same thing, elderly woman, you know, um, uh, and, and she bore John, John the Baptist. Uh, we saw it with Hannah, right? And, uh, well, Mary wasn't necessarily barren, but she was a virgin, and she conceived also. So you see a pattern here. I'm just giving you the, you know, the foundation here, setting up the foundation. Uh, a Nazarite vow, uh, Samson was to have this Nazarite vow, and we can find this in Numbers chapter 6. It comes from the Hebrew word to mean to consecrate or to separate. And this basically, the hair would grow long. Uh, oftentimes, the Nazarites would do it for a certain period of time. The Apostle Paul took this vow. Uh, you could take it for a certain time period, let your hair grow. You couldn't touch anything dead, anything. Um, you couldn't drink anything uh, with a great product or alcohol. And uh, Samson was to have the Nazarite vow for his whole life. Now, what's interesting here is that mom, okay, she's going to have Samson, right? She's told basically to follow some of this Nazarite vow. He tells her, you know, not to have strong drink, be careful what you eat, right? Now, we know that physiologically what the mother eats can affect the baby in the womb. And there is a, a barrier, and the mother does filter a lot of the blood and all that. But still, some of the things mom eats uh, does eventually get to the baby. Spiritually... She was to have no negative influence on her unborn son. Think about that. Mom was to have no negative influence on her unborn son. And I look at that, we can take a lesson from that. How do we influence our children as parents? Associations. Parents, you know, we're going to be held responsible for how we influence our children. Jesus even said about the little ones, he said the innocent ones, and you could take that to be literal children or unbelievers, but he said if anyone perverts them, if anyone clouds their minds, if anyone harms these little ones, in the judgment, it would be better for them to have a millstone wrapped around their neck and thrown into the sea, which is a, a very violent death to drown like that. But Jesus said in the judgment, for somebody to harm a little one, it would be a lot worse. You're better off drowning yourself voluntarily than having to face the judgment harming a little one. So it's, it's interesting how we see the influence of children. I just think about some of the, um, those in our society who would want to um, make our kids grow up faster than they should, to show them things of a sexual nature, to corrupt them with drugs and certain influences. Maybe some of the things they learn in the public schools that they're, they, that they're learning before, they, before their time and taking away those rights from the parents and exposing their innocence. So you can really take a lot from this association issue and how we influence our children in our society. Verse 6. 
So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Kind of funny, she said, well, he didn't tell me and I didn't ask. <laughs> so typical husband and wife scenario, the wife comes home, says this, and the husband's like, well, well, what did he say? Well, what did he look like? Well, what did he tell you? She's like, I don't know. But, you know, you got to put yourself in her position. She probably was so overwhelmed by his presence that she didn't know what to say. How would any of us respond? Look at some of the um, apparitions or the... Um, the appearances of, of supernatural beings to people in the Bible, and they were like, uh, some of them feared judgment. Some of, you know, uh, even, it was it Gabriel had to say to Mary, you know, Mary, do not be afraid. It's, it's, it's a good thing why, why I'm here. Verse 8, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent uh, come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man has just now appeared to me, the one who came to me the other day. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded, let her observe. So pe good people, these are good people here, these Manoah and his wife. They're good people on intent on knowing God's will for their lives and their families. That's kind of neat. Good people, intent, and just on the verge of listening for God's will in their life and their family. There's always a remnant of good, godly people, even in the worst of situations. Always those who will go against the grain, and we see that even the tribulation. As we go through the book of Revelation, we see that there were still good people there that were called from that tribulation period all through Revelation, and uh, you know they still... They still, you know, wanted to know what God's will was for their lives. They were still willing to repent. And it kind of it kind of makes me think about that and say, wow, because this was a bad time period. Now, the people were enslaved by the Philistines in a sense. I mean, they had some freedom of movement, but they, I'm sure, had to pay taxes to them. And uh, the Philistines, I'm sure, would come and raid their farms. And, you know, it was a they were under subjugation of these Philistines. And they kind of got used to this dysfunctional situation, as I said before. And a lot of the people, especially those close, living close to the Philistines, actually started worshiping their gods. So the children of Israel were not in a good place. So it actually was very interesting and uncommon for these two folks to almost be unspotted from the world and to be kind of consecrated themselves and want to know, God, what is your will for me in my life? And you know, as Christians... You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and make our petitions to God. And sometimes I think we're so used to those privileges that we don't cherish it. You know, as you, you have something and you're so used to having it, even, even in our, maybe in our marriages and, our, and with our kids, and 
Maybe some things we take for, for granted. Maybe even our salvation at times we take for granted. But it just shows me such humility of, those, of these people that even as Christians we could look at this and say, you know what, do I ask enough? Lord, what is your will for my life? Are we too busy asking, Lord, I'd like that promotion? Or Lord, um, I don't know, I'd like to retire soon. Or Lord, uh, you know, I, I want to have a baby. Or whatever it is that we forget that of the spiritual things. Lord, what is it? that you want from my life? How do I just be still before you and ask, what can you do, what, what, what should I do? What should I be, how should I be responding to you? So I think that's kind of uh, nice there. What's unusual is that the, the angel of the Lord, and, and again, pre-incarnate Christ uh, appears, and these people are still vaguely trying to understand who they're seeing. And one time they think it's, she says, like the angel of the Lord, and, and at other times they say, oh, are you the man Obviously, the appearance or the form is like a man, but obviously there's something interesting or supernatural that they're not really sure what they're seeing, right? It's their perception of him, this, this person. But he repeats his visits to these people, and, and the question is why? Um, you don't want to get the impression that, okay, here comes the angel of the Lord. They say something, he leaves. Well, well tell him to come back. It's like kind of rubbing the, the, the genie bottle and he comes back up. I, I don't see that. Well, the other question is, is it because they were special? I mean, how many people could say to the Lord, come back, you know, I'd, I'd like to have some more dialogue about this. I mean, that's kind of bold. I don't think that's it either. What I think was that God was so delighted that they chose to follow the Lord and they were so on edge of, of wanting to know the Lord's will that I think it pleased him. I think he was just honored by that. I've heard the expression, I'd like to take credit for it, but it's been out so long that I can't steal it. Um, some have asked, how much of the Holy Spirit could, be, could we be filled with? How much could we be filled with the Holy Spirit? How much could we be baptized with the Holy Spirit? And someone's response was, as much as you want. God will give you as much of the Holy Spirit in your life as you desire. I believe that, uh, that applies to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here, these folks wanted to know, Lord, we want more of you in our life. We want more spiritual things. And I think that's certainly a lesson for folks in our time period, don't you think? We don't want um, religion, we don't want the Christian culture, we don't want the social aspect of it to become so rote and routine that, yeah, we're Christians, that we forget about God. We take the Christ part out of the Christian. You know, we don't want to do that. Verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please, <laughs> it gets better, please let us detain you <laughs> and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? <laughs> a lot of response there. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. As the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, it happened that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. What a sight. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Then his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, 
he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. It's good to be married. <laughs> His wife talked some sense into him. So we see a few things here. Number one, the couple is grateful. They want to show appreciation in the only way they know how. Now let me just say this without just, oh, I'm just putting an application here. Let me really meditate on this. How many of us and how often are grateful for what God has done in our lives? Everyone in this room can be grateful for a plethora of things. And honestly, if we can't think of at least 10 of them, we're not grateful. And you know what I find? I really find this. The more I'm grateful in my prayer life, the more I'm like, Lord, I'm not a rich man, but you know what? I'm really blessed. The more I'm thankful for my wife, my son, being saved, the privileges of being a pastor. I mean, just rattling things off. You know what? That leads to joy. Because if you meditate on the, on the good things, on the things that God has given us, the fact that when you wake up, you open your eyes and you have another breath of life in your lungs and opportunities. I mean, just the simple things. I just mentioned what? In, in the last minute, about eight or nine things? It, it gives us joy. And I find out that I'm more joyful when I'm more thankful. So they had grateful. They were grateful. Number two, they desired his presence. Not only did they want him to come, he showed up. That was cool. Wow, that was wonderful. And then they wanted him to come back. And then when he came back, they didn't want him to leave. So the question to us is, do we desire God's presence? Do we desire all that God has for us? Do we desire to be in his presence? Do we desire to immerse ourselves in prayer, in his word, in fellowship? It's a good question. And also... This person, this angel of the Lord, his true identity is revealed as the chapter progresses. Three things, or yeah, three things. Number one, the name of the messenger. Now, the Hebrew word for his name, he said, why do you ask my name seeing that I am wonderful? <laughs> seeing that it is wonderful. Now, that word wonderful in this book, if you go to Isaiah 9, 6, speaking about Jesus before he's born, right? The, the, the messianic prophecy his name is Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace. The word wonderful there and the word wonderful here both have the same Hebrew root. Okay, so that should, should kind of tip us off a little bit too. And it means wonderful, can be also translated marvelous and beyond understanding. So the, the word, all the translations are pretty wonderful, you know, no pun intended. The second point about his identity is he asks for, he asks for, this is why we know he's not just an angel, he, he asks for and he receives honor and worship. In verse 17, they say, we, we'd like to honor you. Now, you know in the scripture that angels are forbidden, the good angels anyway. The bad angels kind of do what they want for a time until they're judged and damned. But let's just relegate it to the good angels. They're forbidden to receive worship. They're forbidden to take anything that belongs to God because they're fellow messengers. One, in the book of Revelation, I believe it happens twice, the, the disciple John, the apostle John, and he, as he's getting the revelation of Christ, is so excited by what he sees, and the angel's kind of like a guide, that two times he falls down and worships at the angel's feet. And what does the angel say? Man, get up. <laughs> see that you do not do that. I am a fellow servant just as you are. Don't let the Lord see what's going on. Get up. He's like, don't give me any worship. Get up. And don't even let the appearance of you worshiping me. So they don't receive worship. Two, he says, which is very unusual, in verse um, 18, when they ask his name, he says, why do you ask my name, 
seeing that is wonderful. You've ne you'll never catch an angel glorifying himself. But this person says, why do you ask my name, seeing that is wonderful? The third point is this thing in the fire. Almost like a look what I can do in the fire, right? <laughs> he does this, this trick and he goes into the fire and the, the sacrifice is consumed and whew, he just you know, goes up to heaven. An another picture of him being glorified. And that brings us to three. This display in the fire also proves his deity. We can see other parallels in scripture. Number one, the Christophany in the fiery furnace with Daniel's friends, all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Remember, I don't, the, the speculation is that Daniel actually might have been away on some type of ambassador or uh, governor type of um, trip, a dignitary uh, trip, and his three friends were thrown into the fiery furnace, and they looked down and and they, they heated the furnace up real hot, and they look down and they say, well, not only are these guys not burning, but there's one like the Son of Man in that fire. And they came out, and they, their hair wasn't singed, and they were all in good shape, and this, the fourth figure wasn't there anymore. So you see that Christophany there. He has power over the fire. And number two, God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush, right? My Jewish contingent. Of course. That's the, you know, in the Old Testament, that's one of the biggest ones there. And the bush is just burned and burned and burned. And if I'm Moses, I'm like, wow, I can't believe this. And it's not consumed. Uh, but what we see is the ability to remain in fire and not get burned is a picture of having power over judgment. And, of course, Christ has that power over judgment. So then they fall to the ground as the light bulb kind of, you know, figuratively goes off. They have this great epiphany. And in verse 22, it's almost as if, <laughs> like, whoa, we've seen God. And now the husband goes, and we're going to die. <laughs> so it's kind of neat is the third thing about them is they have a reverence for God. I mean, they reverence God. Whoa. We know what the, see, these guys, they knew their Bibles. And they knew that, you know, no one can see God and live. So they, they thought, now, okay, now, especially the husband is like, we're toast at this point. But verse 23, the, the wife kind of gets a hold of her husband and basically says, okay, let's look at this logically. It's good to be married. She basically says to him, if God wanted to kill us, he would have done it already. And he's promised us this son. He's promised us this miracle. Uh, so, you know, kind of settle down. It's going to be okay. Verse 24, last two verses. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Mahana Dan means literally the camp of Dan. And I'm kind of going to stop there. I'm going to explain it and stop there because this is where it goes from good to bad. <laughs> so next time we go into this, we'll see where Samson's life starts to take a downhill. But Samson, we'll talk about next time what his name means and if he lives up to it. And uh, I would just suggest that you read ahead and just kind of be familiar with the text next time we cover it. Uh, but I would just say this, if I would label this, this study, I would call it a good start. Samson's parents were lovely, they were godly people, but in the next chapter we will see the contrast with their son. And you know what, we can see that today. Some are born into a Christian home, in the Christian culture, but they turn out to be problematic, a bad seed, or they walk away from the faith. They can be, end up being entitled, or spoiled, or carnal, or careless about their faith, as we see with Samson. And you know what? Their parents really put a lot into their son. And their parents were, uh, you know, probably most people when they hear the, the story of Samson don't remember Manoah or his wife. 
But those two, in a carnal, wicked, evil society, stood out. And they were really like a light in that society. We'll also learn that a good start is important, but what's more important is how we finish the race. And the Apostle Paul talks about that. So here we got the first chapter is a good start. The next three chapters are pretty horrific. And then at the end of the last chapter, there really is some redeeming qualities. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. So again, if we remember the Apostle Paul's words, he says that when we run a race, and why does he call it a race? Because when you're in a race, you look to win. You know, a race is kind of useless if halfway through it or three-quarters of the way or nine-tenths of the way, you just kind of say, eh, I'm not going to finish it. I'm too tired. It defeats the purpose of what a race is. So that's what Paul talks about. And then we'll see that uh, reflected in Samson's life. Let's pray.